Welcome to the Stephen Mansfield Audio Podcast. We at Mansfield Group are so excited this week because next week our book, The Mormonizing of America, releases. I'm recording this here on the 20th of June. And uh, next week, that book's going out. It's one we're very excited about. I have been studying and tracking Mormonism for, well, really a couple of decades. Gosh, that makes me feel old. And uh, I'm fascinated with it. I'm fascinated by what Mormons have achieved. I'm fascinated by their very unusual history. I'm fascinated by the character of people like Joseph Smith and Brigham Young. I'm even fascinated by the Mormons I've known and the lives they live and why they live those lives. And so, Uh, This book is not so much about the immediate election, it certainly has implications for that, uh, but it's more about just our Mormon moment, how we've reached a critical mass of Mormonism. And believe me, if you are my age down or my age up, if you're anywhere uh, in the adult range, your life will be shaped by the influence of Mormons uh, in American history uh, for the next, I think, at least 50 to 100 years. So it's an absolutely fascinating topic. I wanted to give you a little sneak preview today and read a couple of my favorite sections from this book, The Mormonizing of America. I'll start off with something from the acknowledgments, won't read all of the acknowledgments, but I had the privilege of going to Brigham Young University. Uh, They were very gracious. They asked me to speak and participate in classes, and um, we we just had a really wonderful time together, and yet there were those moments when the differences between us surfaced. And uh, they handled it, grac- handled it graciously. I handled it, I think, graciously. But uh, I describe a few, a few of these at the beginning of the book. So let me read uh, a few sections from the acknowledgments. And then I want to read uh, another section further into the book that really gets down to the hard core of what the book is about. So this is from the initial page of the acknowledgments in The Mormonizing of America. I was five minutes into Dr. Grant Underwood's class at Brigham Young University when I made my strategic mistake. Grant had graciously invited me to participate in his Mormonism in the American Experience class, and I had eagerly accepted. Once I arrived, he urged me to introduce myself to the students. That's when I nearly fell into the pond. I talked about my life for a while and then explained about how fast, how, uh, explained how my fascination with faith had brought me to them. Feeling the moment, I wanted to say something about how welcoming everyone had been, not just at BYU, but at headquarters in Salt Lake City and everywhere I had spoken with LDS scholars, politicians, or believers around the country. That's when I used one of my favorite throwaway lines, Will you adopt me? I say it all the time. If someone bakes something wonderful and offers me a bite, I'll say, oh, how nice, will you adopt me? If a friend builds a house with a particularly beautiful view and a pool, I'll almost automatically ask, will you adopt me so I can live here? So the words fell thoughtlessly from my lips in that class at Brigham Young University, in front of supercharged young Latter-day Saints, there, you know, just south of Salt Lake City and the temple and all. The bright kid in the class, which is all of them, of course, but by bright, I mean smart aleck, didn't miss a beat. He cleared his throat and said, well, of course we will. Would you like for us to call the missionaries? And the whole class cracked up. They had me. Of course they would adopt me. That's what they're on earth to do. Family, eternity, belonging, connection, progressing together. Grant gave me a look that said, wow, you walked right into that one, and you have a doctorate? Must be in basket weaving or volleyball or something. It was the type of warm human moment in which far more is radiated than anyone tries to describe. I loved it. 
It was sweet and endearing, and I saw in that instant a bit of the enveloping community that has enabled the Latter-day Saints to do what few religions have in the tumultuous modern world, allow people to belong before they believe. Let me read just another section here quickly from the same acknowledgments, but a little further in so I don't read to you all of the scholars at BYU and so on that I, that I thank in the acknowledgments. But here's another little descriptive section that I think is meaningful. In the category of scholars and thinkers, I must again mention the amazing students at Brigham Young University. When I think back on this project, whatever else happens, I will always recall the eager faces on that campus. They are the LDS's new generation, and I think they have a sense they're bridging from what has been to some new, more fruitful arrangement with non-Mormon culture. They narrated their world with the easygoing manner of an experienced tour guide acquainted with myth and ignorance. During one of my days at BYU, I mindlessly ordered a Diet Coke in the faculty down dining room. The student waitress looked at me with a comforting smile and said, Now, our Diet Coke, you know, it doesn't have caffeine. That's fine, I said with a shrug. I just didn't want you to be disappointed, she assured. Now, she could have let that go, because no one knows with certainty whether they're drinking caffeine-free when it comes to soft drinks, but she felt she had to take a stand for full disclosure. It was charming. The same happened when I wandered through BYU's bookstore. Right in the middle of that book lover's paradise is a candy store as large as any you'll see at the mall or a major theme park. I turned to the student escorting me and said, my goodness, what's the deal with this? I mean, there were great mountains of bagged candy of the kind you get at the grocery store, but then there were bins of freshly made praline this and walnut that, cream filled somethings next to cherry centered something else. I'm sure no other university has anything like it. My student shadow said, you've got to understand, we don't snort cocaine, we don't smoke, we don't drink alcohol, we don't even drink caffeine. Yeah, I said expectantly. Well, M&Ms are our drug of choice, he said happily. It was clearly a line he had used before, but he broke into such self-satisfied laughter that I had to join him. And there we stood, a member of the Mormon priesthood and a decidedly non-Mormon guest, laughing about what would have been painful to discuss not too many years ago. It is the gift of the new generation, and it taught me more than all the statistics and growth projections stuffed into my notes. So that gives you some sense of my time at BYU, but I want to go now to the heart of the matter in the book and uh, a, a, a section of the book where I'm trying to help adjust a, a non-Mormon's understanding of how a Mormon perceives his faith. We outsiders tend to think in terms of all the extremes, you know, being God one day and wearing holy underwear. And all of that's uh, important, and I discuss that in the book too. Uh, but I, I want to read a section from page 57 of this first edition, What Matters to a Mormon, and just help explain a little bit about how a Mormon understands Mormonism. For a Latter-day Saint, the heart of Mormonism is the restoration of priesthood authority. It is impossible to overstate this. At the core of everything saintly is the unshakable belief that something lost for centuries was restored through Joseph Smith. It is now present in the modern world. It is present only through the LDS Church. It is what all men will ultimately need. Mormons believe that the pure Christianity of Jesus Christ lasted only a short while after Jesus left this life. The Christian Church quickly became unrighteous and corrupt, and it stayed that way until around 1830. In other words, for centuries, the Christian church was a perverse shell of what was intended. Then came Joseph Smith. 
He not only gave the world the Book of Mormon, but he also received, along with a man named Oliver Cowdery, the restoration of the true priesthood of God. Mormons speak of this as a restoration of priesthood authority, which they believe was given in two defining appearances by glorified human beings, an appearance by John the Baptist and an appearance by the apostles Peter, John, and James. In these appearances or visitations, the only real priesthood was restored to Mormons. This means that when someone asks, where has the great age of miracles and revelation gone? The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints says, it's right here, right now, with us. What Mormons believe they have in this priesthood authority is the ability to bring Jesus Christ into people's lives through ordinances. It is the ability to give the gifts of the Holy Spirit, to have revelations, to bless, to dedicate, and even to heal. In other words, it is the supernatural power to do the great works that were done before the Christian church went astray. Now, there are probably no more, uh, well, frankly, I just used the word insightful, no more critical words in this entire book than these when it comes to shifting paradigms. For those of us who are not Mormons, we think about the oddities, don't we? We think about the history of polygamy. We think about how the Book of Mormon was revealed by the angel Moroni to Joseph Smith and how he, if you know the story, interpreted the, the Book of Mormon, you know, translated it by looking at seer stones in the bottom of his hat and all these unusual stories that are in the book. We think about the holy underwear and the rituals and the oddities and so on. But for a Mormon, what he or she believes Mormonism is at heart is a restoration of a priesthood, a supernaturally empowered priesthood that is uh, very, very much in need on earth. Uh, one of my now friends and people I deeply admire, Dr. Catherine Flake, uh, who is a Mormon uh, and also an esteemed professor at Vanderbilt University, said this about Joseph Smith. She said, Joseph Smith was the Henry Ford of Revelation. He wanted every home to have one. And the revelation he had in mind was the revelation he had had which was seeing God. So Joseph Smith was about trying to create a priesthood which had, in a sense, an open heaven above it and could bring God, so to speak, or allow God to be seen uh, by a generation living without God for quite some time. I love this book, The Mormonizing of America. I love uh, the debates we're getting into already. <clears throat> Excuse me, next week. Uh, I am going, well, actually starting this week, I'll be on CBS Good Morning and I'll be on Pierce Morgan's show. Uh, and I'll be on Geraldo. That's going to be fun. And I'll be on Hannity and be with my old friend, Sean. And that's just the beginning. So it's going to be a great ride. Make it with us. Stay tuned to these podcasts and uh, begin to look at uh, our Twitter at Mansfield Rights, because that's how we'll keep people updated on our media appearances. The Mormonizing of America, how the Mormon religion became a dominant force in politics, entertainment, and pop culture, should be available at any bookstore near you, also on barnesandnoble.com, amazon.com, and the audiobook is available at oasis.com. And if you want to see other sources and read more about this book, log on to mansfieldgroup.com.